You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, I'll be talking to Fintan O'Toole about Trump's continuing battle with the media and with truth, epitomised in his strange comments about Sweden. You look at what's happening in Germany. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden. Who would believe this? Sweden. They took in large numbers. They're having problems like they never thought possible. And last week's suggestion by Donald Trump that he has no attachment to the idea of a two-state solution in the Middle East has caused consternation in the region and among European allies. I talked to Mark Weiss in Jerusalem about how the policy shift is going down there. Firstly, to Donald Trump's America. I'm joined by Fintan O'Toole in Princeton to reflect on Trump's continuing unremitting war on the mainstream media that hasn't let up since the campaign. He characterises the media as the enemy, a way of deflecting all critical arguments, not least those about conflict of interest issues. Finton. Yes, so I think this sort of very relentless focus on the media as the... He started talking about it as the opposition, and of course now he's talking about it as the enemy of the people, not just his enemy, the enemy of the people, which is, of course, dangerous talk, but you can see exactly where it's coming from, which is that it both allows him to deflect away from uncomfortable realities that are highlighted by the media in terms of whether it's conflict, conflicts of interest in terms of his businesses, um, whether it's just challenging his assertions you know, on, on a constant basis. But also remember, it's very useful to him. You know, this is a presidency that requires constant conflict. Uh, I think people misunderstand Trump to some extent when they say, well, you know, his first month has been a disaster. Not really from his point of view. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a big reality TV show and it, it, it needs conflict. It needs drama. It needs a sense of who the enemy is. And for his base, there's a very long tradition of identifying mainstream media as the enemy. So when Trump fires that up, he, he, he knows what he's doing. You know, it, it, it actually plays into a narrative that's already there. Um, the people who voted for him... You know, after all, they were willing to see even things like the release of those appalling tapes of him boasting about sexual predation. They were willing to see that as a kind of a setup by the mainstream media. You know, they're, 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 they're psychologically prepared for what Trump is feeding them. And he's just going to keep doing it. You know, there's, there's no chance that he's going to change because it works for him. It is and it isn't working. I mean, his approval ratings are, are significantly down. And and the other thing that he has done, succeeded in doing is boosting the circulation and, and subscription figures for the, for the mainstream media. That's true. <laughs> you know, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, um, you know, which he, he keeps referring to as like the failing New York Times. Uh, but actually, he's been the best thing that's happened to um, the, 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 the serious newspapers in America for probably for two decades. Uh, he certainly has driven people uh, back towards trying to get independent sources of news. However, um, from his point of view, you know, they were never going to be favorable to him. Right. So, so you know, he, he, he's constructing an alternative reality. And if you're doing that, then any kind of respectable media, I mean, no, no matter where it's New York Times or, it's, or it's, a, it's, 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 it's a local paper somewhere in, in New Jersey or whatever, any kind of respectable media is going to have to challenge your alternative reality. 
So there's a, there's a logic for Trump, I think, in, in, in maintaining this hatred of them. Uh, in terms of his approval ratings, I mean, you, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, although it does depend on the poll you read, there are, there are actually quite different ones um, coming out. Um, again, Trump can calm things there by saying, look, they were always wrong about me. They're always rigged. You know? I mean, he has all these narratives. You know, uh, he can say, well, during the primaries, they always underestimate my sport. What we know, roughly speaking, is that there's um, there's probably about a third of the electorate uh, that thinks Trump is great. And uh, his his power lies in the fact that that third of the electorate is very engaged. Right. So it's it's, it's very active. It's very enthusiastic, at least at the moment. It, it, it's 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 like a cult. And he can turn that on the rest of the system. So his 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 problem in, in the immediate horizon is would there be wavering Republicans, you know, the never Trumpers, the, 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 the kind of mainstream conservatives. And so long as he has his base fired up, so long as he's got that third of the electorate behind him, uh, but he can really threaten anybody because, of course, the American electoral cycle means it's only two years until the next elections. He kind of threatened them. If you if you cross me, uh, I still have this enormous base and I can unleash a primary challenge on you when you're up for uh, the primaries, which will be starting in 18 months' time. So, you know, fr from his perspective, he doesn't have to worry too much about falling um, approval ratings quite yet. And, of course, um, you know, we all know that those approval ratings are, are uh, lies. They're, they're concocted by the mainstream media. Uh, his real approval ratings are 99.99%. Now, his alternative is, is direct communication with voters, unmediated uh, by the lying press uh, via, via Twitter um, and, and bizarre press conferences. Is this a long-term sustainable alternative strategy? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think the Twitter thing, you know, it works for him. Like, well, why would he change that? Because, you know, again, we have to remember that from the perspective of, um, you know, flabby liberals like you and me, uh, this kind of behavior is is appalling, and there are large numbers of people in the United States for whom it's appalling. I'm I'm currently based in Princeton University, and it would not surprise you to hear that you don't hear too many people in Princeton saying, you know, Trump is Trump is terrific, and his media strategy is 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 wonderful. However, um, there, there's a lot of people for whom just the very fact that he keeps sticking it to the man, you know, which is seen as the sort of the, the liberal elite. That itself has value, right? And they actually don't care too much whether it's some kind of idiocy about Sweden that turns out to be wrong. They don't really care too much whether he has to sort of later sort of slightly modify it uh, or whether, you know, as we've seen in many cases, his, his surrogates have to come in and kind of sweep up after him. At the moment, they don't care about that too much. I mean, um, I, I, I talked recently to a kind of very wealthy Republican donor um, who just says to me, look, we're dancing in the end zone. And it's a it's a metaphor from American football. You know, when you when you score a touchdown, you 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 leap up and down in the end zone and you, you know, you you blow kisses to your fans. And they're still in that mode. You know, and, and this this person, by the way, was not a particularly pro-Trump Republican, but was kind of saying, you know, it doesn't really matter because we're celebrating the defeat of liberal America. And and so long as a lot of Trump's base can feel that he's really, really annoying liberal America, even if it's with things they know are untrue, they don't care that much. I think what you're saying about alternative facts um, being debunked, not not mattering to to the to the right and to his support base, is is 
quite interesting. We've seen a couple of intrusions of the altern alternative facts uh, into d international diplomacy, particularly, uh, I think, the New York Times has a story today about uh, Russia denying uh, Trump's alternative facts. And, and the, the strange story of Sweden is worth uh, going back over. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Russian thing is getting very interesting, I think, because, you know, a lot of Trump's uh, appeal has been based on a kind of Putinization of America, you know, so he, you know, he, he's been very clear about this, you know, one thing you, you, you can't accuse Trump of uh, is, is, is sort of uh, a secret conspiracy, you know, he's been very clear from right from the primaries, you know, that he, he sees himself as America's Putin, and that this relationship is a kind of crucial axis for him. Uh, what What's happening, I think, increasingly now, though, is that uh, there is a kind of reality happening, which is American diplomacy has to actually go on. And the people around Trump, and particularly people around around Mike Pence, um, uh, you know, are sort of traditional American conservatives, and 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 they don't really want to have the alliance with Russia to to to, to you know to, to be at the center of American foreign policy, and the Russians then in turn are reacting to this, and uh, what we're seeing now is the Russians kind of um, denying the extent of Trump's so-called facts about about his his relationships with Russia they're in a great position in a way because you know Putin's been playing this game much longer than than Trump has they they know how to manipulate uh, these things in a way more skillfully than he does the Sweden story of course people will probably remember in in his 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 um, big rally last week in in Florida uh, where he went kind of basically went back on the campaign trail because that's where he feels most most comfortable uh, he made this remark about, you know, did you see what happened in Sweden last night? It's really terrible. <laughs> and left everybody saying, what happened in Sweden? Um, it, it, it sort of reminded people of the famous uh, Bowling Green massacre that um, Trump's surrogate Kellyanne Conway had had referred to, which again, did, didn't happen. Um, and the Sweden story kind of very quickly became a kind of joke. It's, it's, it's all over the Internet. It's all over Twitter. Um, and, and of course, the Swedes have been scratching their heads. But of course, but again, you know, if you go back to the Sweden story, what what happened there was we now know is that Trump was watching Fox News. He was watching a, a, an item on Fox News. Uh, Tucker Carlson, one of the Fox News uh, hosts, had this item about how Sweden had let in all these refugees, and then these refugees are all committing horrible crimes. Uh, and Trump was responding to that uh, in some kind of garbled way. So then the question is, you know, does Trump, yeah, I mean, Trump is completely wrong, it's, it's idiotic, but does it damage him with the people who watch Fox News? Because Fox News is fake news anyway. You know, the, the whole story, the whole thing was based on propaganda. Uh, so the people who matter to Trump most are the, are, are the people who are probably likely to have been watching the original report. And in their brains, they're not hearing, you know, Trump is an idiot who made up stuff about Sweden. They're hearing... Uh, Trump is responding to the fact that we all know that immigrants commit these horrible crimes, and if you if you let them in, um, you are destroying your society. You know, so so even the most idiotic aspects of of, of what Trump is saying uh, feed into a larger idiocy, which is already very well established and and has, you know, Fox News is mainstream media. You know, that they, they, they of course their their shtick is to deny that, but. You know, they are the most watched news channel in the United States. Uh, so, 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 you know, it, from Trump's point of view, e even the stupidest things, even the biggest embarrassments are not nearly as damaging as people who are sort of used to reality-based uh, views of the world might think.
I was reading a piece in in the one of the American papers the other day suggesting that the problem with Trump's contacts with Russia was not the contacts themselves, uh, but that Trump was becoming more and more Putin-esque by the day. Um, but I, I was I wanted to turn slight just briefly then to the, 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 the reality that now the shock of the election is beginning to wear off. And we're seeing a discussion beginning, probably prematurely, about how long it can take uh, to get rid of him, how, how, uh, whether he can last. Uh, you, I think, see that discussion as pretty premature. I think it is. You know, I mean, it's, it's all based on a notion that sort of Trump's first month has been an absolutely disastrous failure. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as we've been saying, I, I think uh, that is sort of implies certain objective standards, which certainly Trump himself and the people around him would not be applying. I, I, I don't think they will see the first month as a, as a horrible failure. Um, they would see themselves as having completely dominated the news agenda. You know, they would see themselves as having sucked all the air out of, out of everything else. And they would see themselves, by the way, as, as actually having a kind of tacit agreement with the Republicans in Congress. So really what's happening is that you know, Trump is carrying on with his, his reality TV show. And the, the vast majority of Republicans in Congress have said, that's okay, we will defend that however weird it gets. And then the other side of it is he lets us get on with serving corporate interests. Uh, you know, what, what all of Trump's antics have been drawing attention away from is the fact that the, the Republicans have been settling in to an extraordinary corporate-driven agenda, you know, dismantling uh, banking regulation. Um, one of the first things they did, I mean, it's, you couldn't make it up, you know, was, was to, uh, to pass a law which, which, which rescinds regulations which existed under the Obama administration simply to stop coal mining companies from polluting streams. <laughs> they actually passed a piece of legislation essentially saying coal mining companies is actually fine to pollute the water table. That's actually go, go ahead and do that. So and this is happening at, you know, at every level. I mean, every single day there's, there's, there's actual pieces of legislation or changes in regulation that are going through that are, you know, really seriously have it, you know, going to have enormous environmental effects. They're going to unleash Wall Street again. Um, they're going to work against the basic interests of so many of the people that Trump appeals to. And the, so the real question, I think, um, is, again, go back to how long can Trump maintain his rapport with his base? And how long does it take that base or a large part of that base to begin to realize that actually what Trump is saying and what the Republicans are doing are quite opposite things. So Trump is saying, I'm on the side of the forgotten America, and the Republicans could not be saying more clearly, we're on the side of the top 0.1%, we're, we're on the side of corporate America. Um, so and Trump's power entirely depends on being able to sort of keep those two things from, from meeting. You know? <laughs> so so what, what, what his, his distraction techniques um, achieve so far is that Actually, there's been much less notice given to the really serious stuff that's going on underneath. And I, I think he would see that as a success. Thank you very much, Finton. When we come back, it's to the debate on the future of Palestine. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app.
And now to Jerusalem, where the news of Donald Trump's ambivalence about a two-state solution to the Palestinian problem is being seen by the right in the government as a welcome shifting of gears by the US on what has been regarded as a cornerstone of international diplomacy. Trump's attitude is deeply confusing. He said at a press conference with Netanyahu, I'm looking at two states and one state, and I like the one both parties like. I can live with either one. Mark Weiss, why is the two-state solution so central to the diplomacy of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Well, the Palestinians, as you know, for decades have been um, urging uh, Palestinian statehood, the establishment of um, an independent Palestinian state in the land that was occupied by Israel in 1967 during the Six-Day War, notably the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Um, this position um, of two states living side by side in peace has been adopted also by uh, the majority of the Israeli population and the majority of um, Israeli political parties uh, um, endorsed by the left and the center in Israel. Um, and, of course, by the international community en masse that's been urging such a solution again for many decades. Now, we started a process in this direction with the Oslo agreements, the historic signing of a peace treaty between Israel uh, and the Palestinians. But the process over the last few years, of course, has been deadlocked. We, Israel handed over control of uh, much of the West Bank to the Palestinians, particularly the larger population centers. Uh, and the Gaza Strip, of course, has been taken over by Hamas. But we are, over the, over the past few years, during the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu, um, the talks have been deadlocked. Uh, and we are not moving at the moment to, in the direction of a two-state solution. Now, so-called realists, and, and the right indeed, say that there's been a lot of tokenism about two-state solution. And Roger Cohen in the New York Times saying um, in the last few days that a two-state idea has become a fantasy divorced from the reality of Israel's half-century occupation of the West Bank. No basis exists today for believing it's achievable. Is there some truth in that? I think there is. What we're seeing is the creeping annexation, if you like, by Israel of the West Bank. Um, the West Bank can already be divided and indeed was divided under the Oslo Agreement and uh, under three areas, areas A, B and C. Um, areas A are those areas, mainly the major Palestinian population centers, which remain uh, under the control of the Palestinian Authority, headed by President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, there's area C in the West Bank, which is essentially the major um, areas of Israeli settlement. And there's the uh, large area B, which falls somewhere in between, where Palestinians have limited autonomy, but the area is under, uh, remains under Israeli security control. Now, the right wing in Israel, of course, um, hailed the election of um, President Trump as the dawning of a new era. Uh, and the fact that he is um, very different from the outgoing administration, he is not adopting an automatic uh, policy of support for a two-state solution, uh, gives many on the right in Israel uh, the opinion that uh, now is the time for a right-wing government, which we have, to start annexing parts of the West Bank, which would be a death blow to uh, any hopes of um, a, a peace agreement based on a two-state solution. But the the messages, are, uh, as a, with a lot of Trump's messages, are distinctly uh, mixed. And 
U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, said two days after Trump's comments uh, that the United States still supports two-state solution with the Israeli to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's been a fair number of flip-flops on on Israel and NATO. What does Trump's statement mean in practice? Is is there a sort of emboldening of the the right and the settlers? Uh, is it opening divisions in the cabinet and the putting putting off any prospect of talks with Palestinians? Look, it's clear that it's, it's still early days for the Trump administration. Um, they clearly have not developed a, a well-thought-out strategy on this issue. Um, Israel and the U.S. agreed after the Netanyahu-Trump uh, meeting at the White House to set up a, a mechanism, a committee, if you like, that will get down to the nitty-gritty. Basically, I suppose, we're looking at, uh, at maps of where Israel will be allowed to continue with American support uh, to continue settlement construction, uh, probably in the larger settlement blocks in the West Bank, and where um, the Trump administration will say, will draw the line and say, no, enough is enough. You won't be able to build here. Um, we ha- we're not at that stage yet. The, the discussions are just beginning. Um, now, oh, interestingly, only a few weeks ago, the prime minister promised uh, to build a new settlement in the West Bank, uh, the first in many decades. Um, and it, it's very interesting to see if the Trump administration will allow him to go ahead with this promise, a promise he made to 40 families from an illegal outpost of Amona, north of Jerusalem, that was uh, that were evacuated from their homes a few weeks ago following a court law, a court ruling. Um, so we're at a very early stage. But the right wing in Israel are already uh, not very happy that Israel and the U.S. are engaged in this um um, joint committee that will set the limits of uh, settlement construction. They were emboldened, as I said, by the Trump uh, uh, victory, and they want they are pressing the prime minister um, to go ahead and annex large settlements in the West Bank, such as Male Adumim, close to Jerusalem, and areas under Israeli control. The right wing in Israel believe that now is the time to strike as far as the government is concerned. And um, they ignore international criticism, of course. Uh, And remember, of course, that the Trump administration is out of sync with the entire international community, which still supports a two-state solution and would like to see uh, all settlement construction come to a halt. Now, Netanyahu himself is in a difficult position. He, He wants to strengthen the alliances that he's made with Jordan, with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia, which are, which are notable changes in the, the balance, uh, strategic balance in, in, the, in the region, um, particularly their opposition to, to Iran. And on the embassy move to Jerusalem, he has sort of advised hastening slowly for fear of, of, of frightening them. Is, is Netanyahu actually distancing himself from this uh, new hardline position? The Prime Minister faces a difficult uh, balancing act. First of all, he wants to remain his wants to maintain his very friendly relations with the new administration. And for him, this is a godsend. He's had very eight years of very tense relations with President Obama. He has been waiting patiently for a friendly president to come along, and now Donald Trump has come along. They are very close ideologically. They see eye and eye, eye to eye on the Iranian issue and uh, and the threat of militant Islam. And the last thing he wants to do is annoy the Trump administration. On the other hand, um, he has his uh, right wing coalition, 
the far-right parties in the coalition and also the vast majority of his only Likud party are now pressing very hard uh, to end any kind of restrictions on settlement building. And as I said, they're pushing f to go one step further and start annexing parts of the West Bank. Uh, and as you mentioned, um, Israel now is also pushing for some kind of regional framework, an alliance between Israel and, and what are perceived as the moderate Sunni states in the region, uh, some kind of alliance that would uh, block Iranian um, dominance in the region or attempts at Iranian dominance in the region. Uh, but of course, in order to do this, he has to give the Arab states such as Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia something on the Palestinian issue. Um, Israel sees uh, this next step forward as some kind of regional framework which will involve uh, the Palestinians with these moderate Sunni states thrashing out the details uh, uh, of some kind of framework that will have the blessing of the moderate Arab states. Uh, it remains uh, difficult to see how he can appease both his own right-wing coalition partners and the Trump administration and the moderate Arab regimes. Just to turn briefly to the to the alternatives to the two-state solution, the the the, the one-state solution has actually been been proposed uh, for some time by sections of the Palestinian community and would involve uh, integrating the Palestinians into a lar larger I Israeli state, which would have to be secular democratic state. Uh, now that clearly is not what the the settlers and the right have in mind uh, when they reject the two-state solution. Um, their alternative is, as you say, annexation. Um, it's also handing over territory to Jordan. Isn't that right? Um, there are many ideas floating around. Uh, and remember, of course, that the, the majority of the Israeli po population still supports the two-state solution. Essentially, what a one-state solution would mean is the end of Israel as a Jewish state and a democracy together. A one-state solution can go in one of two directions. It can be a democratic state for all the citizens between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean. That means what we have today are currently is Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, with all those people becoming citizens of a single state. Now, this, of course, immediately would undermine the Jewish majority um, and would be the end of the Zionist dream, if you like. The other option... Uh, the other one-state option would be um, Israelis continuing uh, with nationality and the Palestinians being denied nationality, being given some kind of uh, autonomy, uh, very similar to what we had uh, under apartheid South Africa. And again, this is not what most Israelis want to see. Uh, this is the uh, this is the option pushed by um, the right-wing militants in Israel, and many amongst the settler community. Uh, and this would turn, probably turn Israel into a pariah state amongst the international community, uh, very similar, again, to the South African uh, apartheid system. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks to Fintan O'Toole and Mark Weiss, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan, and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.